Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Star Wars Legends Lounge, the show that celebrates the books from Star Wars Legends. I'm Aaron Motes. We're going through a real cold snap here in my neck of the woods with overnight temperatures dipping into the single digits Fahrenheit around minus 15 Celsius. But there is some good news. That lingering cough I developed after getting COVID-19 last month seems to be waning. It's mostly gone. So that's pretty awesome. In other news, we've had some more stuff from Legends make their way into canon. For those of you who have been watching the Book of Boba Fett series, there was a reference in the third episode about how the Witches of Dathomir used to ride rancors through the forests of their world. A reference from the courtship of Princess Leia is now canon. Unbelievable. Of course, the Witches of Dathomir from the courtship of Leia are different from how they were depicted in canon in the Clone Wars animated show. But just the fact that the show referenced the Rancor writing made me so happy. The big question is, are there any witches left? Palpatine basically had them wiped out by the end of the Clone Wars, so maybe the witches writing their Rancors are now history in canon. But I'll hold out hope that a few have survived and maybe we'll get a chance to see them riding their rancors sometime in the future. Next up, we have a listener question, my favorite part of the show. Today's question comes from a new listener, Nick Ferreira. Nick says, I recently discovered your podcast, and it's a delight. I just finished your episode on Heir to the Empire. My question is a two-parter. First, how do you feel about the theory of Thrawn trying to gear the Empire up for the Yuzhang Vong? Second part, how do you think the Empire under Palpatine and Vader would have fared against the Yuzhang Vong invasion? I remember Han and some Imperial having a conversation about it in the New Jedi Order, but I feel as though they both had biased opinions on the subject. Well, first off, Nick, thank you very much for the question. Now, before I answer a little history... I've said before on the podcast that I prefer the way Thrawn is depicted in the Heir to the Empire trilogy and in the Rebels TV show over how he's portrayed in the other Legends novels and the canon books to this point. Now, there's nothing in the original Thrawn trilogy or in Rebels that alludes to the fact that Thrawn may have had a personal agenda for joining the Empire like trying to prepare for an invasion from outside the galaxy. The first time that I remember reading about the Empire and the Chiss having any contact from some sort of greater threat is from the Hand of Thrawn duology books in Legends. If it's referenced somewhere else first, please, any one of the listeners out there, let me know. As to whether or not I believe the theory that Thrawn was trying to prep the Empire from an extra-galactic invasion, a.k.a. the Yuzhang Vong, I think it's pretty well established that that's exactly what he was doing in the Legends timeline. When the New Republic makes contact with them, the Chiss talk about the Far Outsiders, and Thrawn disagreed with Chiss law about only using hostilities after they'd been attacked first. So... Thrawn joined the Empire to gain a powerful ally for the Chiss once the Yuzhang Vong invasion began. Is this one of my favorite parts of Legends? No. To me, it's another one of the examples of Thrawn's character morphing into something different 
as the Legends timeline goes along. But does it work narratively? Absolutely. Thrawn could have been working for the Empire while still preparing to help his species prepare for the Vong invasion. I think the more interesting question, Nick, is your second one. How would the Empire have fared against the Vong? Now, there is a theory out there among some Legends fans that Palpatine had a premonition of the Vong invasion before he formed the Empire. In fact, it was one of the primary reasons for the formation of the Empire in the first place. Go ahead, Google it. Anybody can find it online. Now, I absolutely disagree with this theory. For me, Palpatine was the culmination of the Sith plan to defeat the Jedi and to bring the galaxy under Sith rule. Personally, I don't think the Empire would have fared well against the Yuzhang Vong. I think the first few years of the Vong invasion would have gone almost exactly the same against the Empire as it does against the New Republic in the New Jedi Order books. It would have started with the Vong taking over some of the Outer Rim worlds. The Empire would have pulled back most of their military resources to the Inner Rim to protect the area around Coruscant. Now, I think the Empire would have been quick to try different methods against the Vong, like biological or nuclear warfare, destroying worlds in order to keep the Vong from conquering them. Because in the end, I believe the only thing Palpatine cares about is power, and he would do anything to try and keep hold of his power. Thank you very much for the question, Nick. If you'd like to be a really cool person like Nick and contact the show, please email me at swlegendslounge at gmail.com or send me a tweet at legendslounge1. Ask me a question or send a message. And remember, if you'd like to have your voice on the show, like we had with two guests during the Heir to the Empire episode, feel free to record a three to five minute audio file about any of the upcoming books you see on the schedule and email it to me swlegendslounge at gmail.com. Just please record it in MP3 or MP4 format. Now it's time for today's book, Dark Force Rising by Timothy Zahn, the second book in the Heir to the Empire trilogy. Grab yourself a drink. Let's head in to the Star Wars Legends Lounge. Dark Force Rising begins with Borskphalia making a power play, taking advantage of the Imperial attack on the Sluis Van shipyards and a large payment making its way into Admiral Akbar's bank account. Most of the New Republic higher-ups are skeptical that Akbar has done anything treasonous, but there is a growing number of soldiers in the New Republic military that are backing Phalia. Han and Leia think Akbar is being set up by the Empire from a hidden spy called Delta Source. Han and Lando do a little investigating and find out that Phalia and the Bothans seem to have an unusual interest on the planet New Kav. They decide to poke around and try to find out why and enlist Luke to head off to New Kav together. But Leia can't go with them. She needs to fulfill her promise to the Nogri Kabarak and meet him in orbit around Endor. Meanwhile, Talon Card is on the run from Grand Admiral Thrawn. 
Picard was forced to pack up his smuggling operation and leave Merker after failing to tell the Grand Admiral that he had been holding Luke Skywalker in custody. Card relocates his organization to the planet Rishi. When Mara Jade presses Card about his reaction on Merker to Thrawn's request for ships, Card reveals that he knows the location of the fabled Katana fleet, 200 dreadnoughts that disappeared before the Clone Wars. Mara suggests selling the information to Thrawn to get the Imperials off their backs. But Card refuses, saying he wants to wait and see which of the New Republic or the Empire gains a bigger advantage in their ongoing conflict. But the Empire finds out about the Rishi hideout. Mara is captured, but bargains for her and Card's freedom by telling Thrawn that she will get Card to give the Empire the Katana fleet's location. But Thrawn breaks the deal and tracks Mara to Card's new location, taking the smuggler into custody on the Chimera. On New Cov, Han and Lando discover one of Borsk Falia's aides at the spaceport. They track the aide, but are taken by surprise by a woman working for a local militia group. They're taken before the militia leader and discover it's the former Corellian senator, Garmbel Iblis. The revelation stuns Han, who, like the rest of the galaxy, thought Bel Iblis was killed at the start of the Galactic Civil War. Bel Iblis tells them that since his presumed death, he's been waging his own private war against the Empire, and the former Senator's organization has amassed an impressive cachet of ships and materiel, including six dreadnoughts. Han asks Bel Iblis why he never returned to the New Republic after the war. The reason? Mon Mothma. Bel Iblis says that he was uncomfortable with how much power and influence Mon Mothma was gaining in the early years of the Rebellion, especially after Bail Organa was killed on Alderaan. Bel Iblis was convinced that Mon Mothma was setting herself up to replace the Emperor, so after he was presumed killed in battle, he decided to leave the Rebellion and go into hiding. But the Bothan spy network discovered Bel Iblis's organization, and now Phalia wants to bring the former senator and his private army into the New Republic. Lando is skeptical of the tale, but when the two discover that Bell Iblis's six dreadnoughts are from the Katana fleet, they demand to know how Bell Iblis obtained them. Bell Iblis says he bought the ships from a former smuggling captain named Hoffner. Han and Lando leave Nukov to find Hoffner. Above Endor, Leia meets with Kabarak and heads off to Honegger with the Nogri, Chewbacca, and 3PO. Once there, she learns Honegger suffered a biological disaster following a capital ship battle that raged above the planet. One of the ships crashed down, causing planet-wide earthquakes and volcanic explosions. And once the seismic activity abated, acid rain drenched the landscape, killing most of the plant and animal life. But Darth Vader offered relief to the Nogri, delivering emergency food and supplies. Vader vowed that the Empire would clean the planet in return for the Nogri serving as special commando units. With Vader and the Emperor dead, the Nogri now serve the Grand Admiral. While Leia and Chewie contemplate how the New Republic can help the Nogri people, Thrawn arrives to interrogate Kabarak. The Grand Admiral believes that Kabarak was held captive on Kashyyyk for a month and interrogated by the Wookiees revealing secrets about his mission to kidnap Leia. Kabarak is taken 
to the Nogri capital of Nisteo to be held by the Nogri dynasts until he reveals what happened on Kashyyyk. On the planet Jomark, Luke discovers that something isn't quite right with Juras Sabaoth. The Jedi Master doesn't act like Yoda or Obi-Wan Kenobi. He's much harsher when dealing with other people. When asked about it, Sabaoth says that it's a Jedi's obligation to lead the public. We know the Force, he says. We know what's best for them. It's an opinion Luke doesn't agree with. The Jedi are supposed to be the beacons of peace and justice in the galaxy. They're not supposed to make decisions for how people are to live their lives. One night after another tense session of metting out judgment, Mara Jade arrives to ask Luke for his help to free Talon Card. Sabaoth uses the Force to attack Mara and Luke when he steps in to defend her. But together, the two are able to defeat the crazed Jedi Master with R2-D2's help leaving Sabaoth alive but unconscious. Mara and Luke leave Joe Mark and head to the Wistral system. The plan is to commandeer an Imperial supply shuttle that will be meeting up with the Chimera soon. And the plan basically goes off without a hitch. Luke and Mara sneak into the detention block, free Card, and following a brief firefight, they escape. Card thanks Luke for helping Mara break him out. He tells Luke to take them to Coruscant. To pay off the debt, Card says he'll offer the New Republic the coordinates of the Katana fleet. Han and Lando track Captain Hoffner to a casino on Pantalo Min, but they learned that the ship thief Niles Ferrier got to Hoffner first and delivered him to Thrawn. Han and Lando are caught in the middle of an Imperial attack on the casino, but they are able to escape, and they head back to Coruscant to inform the Council. On Honegger, Leia and Chewie are at a loss with how to help the Nogri. Chewie runs some scientific tests that show the decontamination droids the Empire left to clean the soil should have been able to finish their work in about eight years. Leia talks with the village Matrak about the Nogri's service to the Empire. Leia feels guilty about the Rebel Alliance's role in the devastation on the planet and how they never offered assistance to the Nogri people. In fact, they never knew the Nogri existed. The Matrak tells Leia that the Nogri are honor-bound to serve the Empire. They need to pay their debt for Lord Vader's help in trying to restore their planet. The Matrak laments the four sons she lost to Imperial service. Leia begins to offer her condolences when she stops short. Isn't Kabarak her son? The Matrak says Kabarak is her third son. The son of the son of her first son. Leia is stunned. Kabarak is the Matrak's great-grandson. Frantically, Leia asks the Matrak how long ago the space battle took place over Honegger. 44 years ago, she answers. Leia is horrified. The space battle didn't happen during the Galactic Civil War. It happened during the Clone Wars. The Empire has been slow playing the Nogri for nearly half a century to keep them indentured to do the Empire's bidding. The decontamination droids haven't been purifying the soil, they've been keeping it poisoned. Leia and Chewie take their evidence to the Nogri dynast, revealing the Empire's treachery. The story ends at the Katana fleet. Card leads a New Republic scouting unit to confirm the fleet's position. There, 
they are surprised by a pair of Imperial Star Destroyers. But Han and Lando use the Katana's slave circuitry to use one of the Dreadnoughts as a battering ram, slamming it into one of the Star Destroyers. The two ships explode in a ball of fire. In the aftermath, the New Republic only finds about 15 Dreadnoughts remaining. Thrawn has beaten them to the Katana fleet, and the Grand Admiral has taken more than 180 of the warships with him. Time for a break. When we return, I'll talk more about Dark Force Rising, and I'll try to answer the question, how much of this book really works? I'm Aaron Motes. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Star Wars Legends Lounge. Thank you for listening to the Star Wars Legends Lounge, where we celebrate the books from Star Wars Legends. But allow me to take a moment to recommend a book from Star Wars canon. Tarkin tells the story of a scion of Iriadu. A distinguished soldier and politician, Governor Wilhuff Tarkin rises through the Imperial ranks, believing that the fear of force is the most efficient way to rule. It's a story of action and intrigue. That's Tarkin by James Luceno. Welcome back to the Star Wars Legends Lounge, the show that celebrates the books from Star Wars Legends. I'm Aaron Motes, and today I'm talking about Dark Force Rising by Timothy Zahn, the second book in the Heir to the Empire trilogy. Now, before I went to break, I asked the question, how much of this book really works? And to be honest, yes, that question is a little bit facetious. Does the book work? Yes. However, are there a lot of things in this book that make me scratch my head? Also, yes. I think of the three books in the Heir to the Empire trilogy, now I know we haven't talked about the last book yet, The Last Command, but I think of the three books, the first book, Heir to the Empire, is by far the best book. There are some good things in Dark Force Rising. There are some good things in The Last Command. But I think there are just as many things in those books that probably don't work as well as Zahn intended them to. Overall, I think the trilogy is greater than the sum of its parts. When you talk about Dark Force Rising specifically, I know I don't usually do this on the show, but today I'm going to be a little nitpicky. Let's start with the Nogri. Leia learns that the Nogri have been indentured to the Empire for 44 years, used as commando units by Vader, the Emperor, and lastly, Grand Admiral Thrawn, to carry out secret missions, mostly assassination or kidnapping missions of important political and military targets. Now, personally, I find it difficult to believe that over the course of 44 years, there is not even a whisper of these gray-skinned alien hunters anywhere in the galaxy. Not rebel intelligence during the Galactic Civil War. Not from 
the Bothan spy net, not from New Republic intelligence in the five years since the war ended, not from various underground groups. That is one reveal in the story that I think Timothy Zahn could have done differently. A second is the introduction of Garmbel Impless. I'm not going to say he's a good character or a bad character. That's up for the reader to decide. But once again, I find it difficult to believe that rebel intelligence and later New Republic intelligence know nothing about this militia group waging their own private war with the Empire. You know, a paramilitary group that has a bunch of weapons and ships, including six dreadnoughts. I think this is just two examples of something that this book suffers from. That on the surface, they make really interesting points to the narrative. But once you scratch below the surface, they don't make a whole lot of sense. At least they don't make a whole lot of sense to me. And then, of course, the biggest one, the third one, is the Katana fleet. Now, I said I was going to be picky. I'm not against the fact that the Katana fleet exists. That sometime at the beginning of the Clone Wars, the Old Republic designed a fleet that could be crewed by one-sixth of the normal personnel where the flagship controlled the other ships, at least when it came to ship movements through hyperspace. That's actually pretty intriguing. What doesn't work for me in this book is that everywhere we go in this novel, either Card knows the location of it, this Captain Hoffner knows the location of it, that Garmbel Iblis already has six dreadnoughts that were part of the fleet. I mean, this book takes place, as far as I can tell, roughly over a week, maybe not even a week, you know, five to seven days. And yet we go from nobody knowing anything about the Katana fleet outside of Card and the crew he was working with accidentally running across it 15 years ago to over the course of five to seven days, half of the characters in this book have already either gotten the coordinates for the Katana fleet or have actually gone ahead and taken some of the ships from where the fleet is lost in space. Again, I don't have an issue with the Katana fleet existing, and I don't have an issue with the New Republic and Thrawn racing to get the Katana fleet. It just seems like it went from nobody even looking for it at the beginning of the book to everybody already knowing about it by the end of the book. I guess I just didn't like the way those coincidences were written. You know, I don't like to be negative when it comes to these books, but I've now read 
Dark Force Rising six times. This was the sixth read-through. And after that first reading, way back when it was published in the early 90s, 1992, I believe, upon each subsequent reading, I found things in the book that just don't work for me. And I'm sure you can do that with any book or movie or television show. When you experience them over and over again, they're going to hit differently. Sometimes they're going to be better. Sometimes they're going to be worse. Sometimes they're going to be unchanged. And it also depends what time of your life you read it. You know, the first time I read this, I was only 15 years old. Now I'm 43, about to be 44 in a month. It just hits differently. And I don't like to nitpick these stories. But I think there's a difference between nitpicking and things just not working. And, you know, there's a lot in this book that just doesn't work for me. But again, as I said before, I think the story as a whole is better than the sum of its parts. I really like the continuing interactions between Luke and Mara. And I think that was one thing that this book needed a little more of. We only get it for a short time when they go to rescue Talon Card. Their interaction is pretty interesting. Luke's interactions with Joris Sabaoth are pretty interesting. As I've said before, Sabaoth is not one of my favorite characters in Legends, either the original Sabaoth from back in Outbound Flight or the clone Sabaoth here in the Heir to the Empire trilogy. But in the two chapters where Luke is training under Sabaoth and he is hearing these opinions of the Jedi and their role in the galaxy. And he's comparing them to what he was taught by Yoda and Obi-Wan Kenobi. It's pretty fascinating. Luke's own inner turmoil with these conflicting opinions. I mean, let's face it. Luke's only ever known two other Jedi. In the Legends timeline, he's trying to rebuild the Jedi Order, only having interacted with Yoda at the end of his life and Obi-Wan Kenobi at the end of his life. Heck, how long did he know Obi-Wan Kenobi? A day? Day and a half? You know, the events of A New Hope may have taken place over, what, about a 24-hour period? So Luke questioning the role of the Jedi moving forward is one of the better parts of this book, in my opinion. And that includes an incident that happens when he is with Han and Lando on New Cov before he goes to Joe Mark to train under Sabaoth, where Luke is called upon to render judgment between a bearable and a Rodian who are having a dispute. And it's the first time that Luke has ever been thrust into a situation where he has to make this type of decision. You know, and it gets him questioning. Obi-Wan told me that for thousands of generations, the Jedi Knights were the keepers of peace and justice throughout the galaxy. Well, what exactly does that mean? It could mean settling disputes one-on-one, like these two aliens ask Luke to do. And it's not something that he's prepared for. 
He tries to do it to the best of his ability. He doesn't believe that he does a good job. But thankfully, the two aliens accept his judgment. Then he goes to Jomark, and when he sees Sabaoth doing the same thing, but in a different way, again, he questions how best to reorder the Jedi Order. You know, Sabaoth doesn't really listen to both sides and try to render a judgment that is equitable to both sides of a dispute. Sabaoth hears what happened, uses the force to basically invade the two people's minds to see if there's anything that they are omitting or lying about. And whenever he renders judgment, it is almost always skewed toward one of the complainants over the other. When Luke asks about it, Sabaoth basically says that these petty arguments are beneath the Jedi. The best thing to do is simply take care of it as quickly as possible so that the Jedi can then go about the business of making the big decisions on how to best lead civilization forward which for Luke runs contrary to everything he had been taught by Obi-Wan and Yoda. So that is one thing in this book that I really like. I just don't think there was much of it. There was only about four chapters total out of the, I think there's 29 or 29 or 30 chapters in this book. And I think there's only four chapters of that. But there are other things to like about this book. If you're a fan of Leia, they give Leia a big part in this book. We are with her interacting with the Nogri on Honegger for a large portion of this book. And we see Leia doing what Leia does best, trying to help people. And she does it not simply with her diplomatic skills. She uses the Force. She tries to use some of the Jedi techniques that she has learned from Luke. It's one of those things that I wish we had gotten more of in the sequel trilogy. Now, maybe it is something we will get more of in canon, be it in books, comic books, television shows, whatever. But one aspect of the sequel trilogy of movies I wish we would have gotten more would have been Leia using the Force or just Leia using some Jedi techniques, whether it's through the Force or not, but just some Jedi techniques that she learned training under Luke. I wish we would have gotten some of that. And maybe we would have in The Rise of Skywalker if Carrie Fisher hadn't passed away before they filmed that movie. Who knows? Finally, one last thing that I really did like about this book was that Grand Admiral Thrawn makes some mistakes. I think one of the reasons I'm not as big a fan of Thrawn as other people, is in Zahn's other books, be it the Hand of Thrawn duology or Outbound Flight in the Legends timeline or the six books in the canon timeline, it's that 
Thrawn is almost infallible. Now, now, let me say that as far as the canon books go, I've only read the first two. I know there's six. I've only read the first two. So maybe I'm completely wrong here. Maybe there are things in the four later canon books that show that Thrawn does make some wrong decisions. But at least as far as Zahn's other writings go, Thrawn seems almost infallible. As I've called him before, he's like the Sherlock Holmes of the Star Wars universe, where he's able to deduce things before they happen, and he is always correct in what had happened. In Dark Force Rising, he makes some mistakes. He believes that Han and Lando go off to try to investigate the deposit into Akbar's bank account when they're not. They're looking for Delta Source. He believes that Kabarak's missing month was because he was being held by the Wookiees on Kashyyyk and being interrogated when we know he was not. Kabarak had brought Leia to Honiger because Leia wanted to try to help the Nogri people. I think it makes the Grand Admiral a more interesting character when he's incorrect sometimes. But that's just me. Oh, one last thing. Again, I like to point out some of the real-world things that make their way into these Legends books. And this one may be a little nitpicky. It may not actually be the same as some of the others in the past, like Baseball or St. Elmo's Fire or something like that. But Garmbel Iblis's hideout is called the Peregrine's Nest, meaning that in the Star Wars universe, they know what a peregrine is, which in the real world here is a type of falcon. Again, that one may be a little nitpicky because I do believe they have other things like vipers and or they call other things vipers and stuff like that in Star Wars. So, you know, take this one with a grain of salt. Oh, oh, I forgot. Last week for Air of the Empire to point out one. One of the ones that everyone laughs about in Legends, and that is, of course, Luke's infamous hot chocolate. Forgot about that one last week. Wanted to get it in. Time to wrap up. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Star Wars Legends Lounge. On the next episode, we'll finish the series. Join me for The Last Command on February 4th. Until then, if you have a question or comment for the show, send me an email at swlegendslounge at gmail.com or send a tweet at legendslounge1. I'd love to hear from you. And, again, if you would like to have your voice on the show please feel free to record your own three to five minute audio file and email it to me at swlegendslounge at gmail.com. Just check out the schedule on the show's Twitter page and see if there's a book you have an opinion on. Just help me out and record it in an MP3 or MP4 format. Once again, thank you so much for listening to the Star Wars Legends Lounge. I'm Aaron Motes. May the Force be with you, and remember, there's always a bit of truth 
in Legends.